guys, if you want to find a seat, we'll go ahead and get started. Okay, everybody, so let's jump in here. Um, William, William Shakespeare is generally regarded as the greatest writer ever to work in the English language. Some of you may dispute that, but um, for many, he's also the greatest playwright in history. And then about 200 years later, a man named Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, um, which I for years said Goth or Gothi, like how do you say this dude's name? But it's Goethe, became sort of the German Shakespeare. Um, he was a playwright as well, a novelist, uh, a scientist, a statesman, an inventor, a poet. Um, but he became the most influential writer to this day in the German language. And he once wrote this sentence that I stumbled upon and, and um, have been thinking a lot about since I first read it a couple years ago. He said, a person hears only what they understand. Think about that for a second. A person hears only what they understand. About a century later, a French theorist named Jacques Lacan, who you know I have a thing for, um, would elaborate on this same idea. Lacan said, we only ever hear and understand what we have grown used to hearing and understanding. When something else is being said, the rule of the speech game makes us censor it. We kind of find ways to discount or just refuse to even hear and register things that don't compute. We, we censor them totally unconsciously. And what he means by the, the rules of the, the speech game it has to do with the role that Lacan thought language played in um, the human attempt to grasp reality itself. He, Lacan thought that humans have this, what he called the imaginary. It's kind of, I know I've talked about this before, it's kind of the, the working theory of the world and how we fit within it. It's sort of a fantasy, kind of an ideal of what it means you know, to be you or to be a good boy or girl or, or whatever. And, and how reality exists and how it's supposed to, to work. And it sort of gives us this illusion that reality itself is stable and complete, that the world makes sense and we have kind of a grasp on it. So, so the imaginary is very idealistic and um, to the point of really being an illusion. In fact, it's, it's um, uh, Lacan thought that anytime we view the world as we're going through life, anytime we kind of think the world just makes sense, it has wholeness and completeness, he's like, you are in the imaginary at that point, totally. And Lacan, he also thought there's this kind of symbolic register that comes over the, the top of this. And we all have to submit ourselves to these um, symbolic structures, in a sense, that help us to sustain and regulate our imaginary. These are things like laws and norms and customs that we live by in society, including language it itself, which is a way of symbolizing reality. So the, the symbolic comes in and, and sort of reinforces and transmits um, the, the rules of life 
that we all live by in the form of things like stories and myths and structures and systems that govern the way we behave and act. And, and humans love this. Humans love to symbolize things. I mean, we are constantly trying to conceptualize, categorize, describe, codify things. Like, this is just what, what we do. And so together, these two things, sort of this, our imaginary, our imagination for the world to be, and then this, this symbolic order, they, they come in, they sort of fit together and, and comprise, Lacan said, our view of reality itself, our working theory about the world and how it functions, and then all, all the symbols and structures that support us and tell us what's possible and impossible in the world and how our lives fit within reality and how we should relate. And Lacan said, this is kind of how we view what, is, what reality is, but there are also these times when this symbolic structure falls short, you know, or, or the rules seem to be violated in some way, and suddenly our, our normal view of reality is sort of breaks down, and a gap appears, sort of a, a cut or a gap within reality itself, and we're faced with this, like, some kind of situation in where there's this strong dissonance between our actual lived experience and, um, like, our usual, our typical explanations of how reality's supposed to work, and Goethe, um, in his way of saying it, is that we, we we're hearing something, but we don't hear it. We don't understand what we're encountering. We, so we can't even hear it. We can't comprehend it. And often when one gap appears, then suddenly another one appears too, and another, a few more will quickly follow. And, and all of us have gone through this at, at one time or another. It's just those times when you say to your friend, I feel like I'm going crazy right now. You know, I don't even know what's real anymore. You're second-guessing yourself your place in the world, what people's motivations are, that kind of stuff. Lacan's name for this was the real, which is, is confusing because the real, by the real, he does not mean reality. Reality is above the line there. But the real is, in a sense, what defies reality within our own experience. Like, it's some aspect of our life. It just doesn't fit with the way we thought the world was supposed to work with our explanations of reality. So this is stuff like a trauma, right, or a betrayal. Um, a new birth can do this. A sudden death. Great joy. Um, fall, falling in love. Suffering. An, an encounter with the beautiful. Um, something happens to us, and, and it's, it it's happening, but we have no words for it. Like, it's overwhelming us. It's, it's somehow, um, we're dumbstruck. It's like unsayable, sort of unthinkable, unimaginable, and we don't have a way to symbolize it. It just feels sort of uncanny and disturbing, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But it, it really threatens our sense that reality is stable and, and it coheres together. It feels like reality is shifting beneath our feet. And it kind of wrecks our, our sense that we were located. In the world, we know where we are and what we're supposed to do. And Lacan said, at this point, um, usually what happens is the imaginary swoops in and tries to cover over the gap, tries to offer an interpretation or rationalization, a way to cover up this this cut in reality and just maintain the illusion, so we can just keep on trucking. That's what he meant by the the language game. That's what he's referencing. We find some, you know, logical explanation for why this is happening or, or re reject what we are 
hearing as, or seeing as kind of a fluke, I must have misunderstood this, or we, we, make, we, we try to make it sound more like something that we're used to hearing. We come up with a reasonable explanation. This sort of covers over the gap and the dissonance. But it's an illusion. It's, it's, it's imaginary. Like we're kind of deluding our, ourselves. In fact, Freud talked about this. He said that um, most of the time when we, when we think we're learning about something new that's like this, it's an eruption of the real, it's just kind of a, it's uncanny. What we're really doing is trying to find a way to keep from adjusting our worldview in light of this. That's what we're doing. He said to explain a thing really just means to trace it back to something already known. It's kind of a cutting insight. So when the real erupts into our life, some crazy, you know, beautiful thing, horrible thing, some unthinkable thing comes our way, we, we try to trace it back to something that seems reasonable to us, something already known that fits with our view of reality. And we, we, when we're doing this, then we start to refuse to know what we're starting to know about this thing that's coming toward us. And, and the problem is, this experience is disturbing to us, even if we can't admit it to ourselves and others. There's some, sometimes this gets called denial, right? Um, which is, you know, not usually a good thing to live in denial. We can, we can ignore the eruptions of the real much of the time. We pretend to just accept our imaginary explanations, but the emotions are real. And they register, they have an impact on us. And they end up coming out in other ways, you know, displaced anger, recklessness, self-harming behaviors, strident legalism, superstitions, addictions, anxieties. I mean, many of our struggles in life, things that really trip us up and become serious, can be traced back to something um, that we're trying to ignore, right? Refusing to wrestle with some eruption of the real, some piece of life that we just don't know how to handle, refusing to adjust our view of reality. So we end up almost like in a, in a dream world, in a make-believe world, a world that we're dreaming up, right? In fact, there's an old saying from the Talmud, the, the Jewish collection of wisdom, and, and it's kind of, it was the main Jewish theological text for centuries. Um, it was originally talking about dreams, but has come to kind of be applied to all of life, it says, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. That's the Jewish take on this phenomenon. Our vision of the world is shaped by our own soul. Our imaginary symbolic reality, it's limited by our limitations, our, our prejudices, the, the grudges that we hold, the fears that blind us. And, and we don't really end up seeing the world as it actually is. We see the world as we are. And a person hears only what they understand. We only understand what we're used to understanding. And if something doesn't fit, we find a way to censor it and to explain then these weird things. It just means to trace it back to something already known, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. I don't need to adjust reality. And this lets us feel like we live in a really stable world where we know how to navigate, right? So I'm guessing you can already see where I'm going with this. What I want to try to do is kind of crash this idea into the story of Thomas, Doubting Thomas, 
and these disciples who are wrestling with a serious eruption of the real called resurrection. This new reality breaking into the world, and it just doesn't fit with what they know of the world. It just doesn't fit. And, and I think that, that viewing it through this lens, um, that resurrection was unthinkable, right? Unimaginable. It, it, it can do something to our relationship to our Christian faith. Because there, there's a sense in which I think for all of us, you can, you can use this lens to think about how you relate to God. So there's an imaginary that has to do with God. This is the God that you imagine in your own heart, in your own soul. The, the image of God we all have in our heads, the God to which we address our prayers, the God in whom we place our hopes. And, and there's this God that we all imagine, and it's, your, yours is different from mine, it just is. I don't have access to yours, but you have an imaginary. And there's a, a symbolic that has to do with God. These, these are the ways we've symbolized our beliefs and our, our doctrines, the God that we sing about in our songs, right? The, the God we talk about in our stories. We've created these massive symbolic structures called theology and doctrine in which to kind of codify our symbolic beliefs about God, right? These sort of come together then in the same way to, to um, make our reality about God. They sort of come together under the general heading that we could call religion. Our religious beliefs, right? Our religious imagination about God. And so there's a, there's a sense in which Christianity, really all religion is like this. Christianity, though, is a, is a powerful imaginary symbolic reality that helps us just navigate our world and think the world is stable and complete and in God's hands and we know how to operate in this world and how to be faithful and this is, I mean, this is a, it's a good thing and it's a blessing. And yet, there exists within all that this internal problem with it, this internal antagonism or contradiction within the system that threatens to just topple the whole thing, to destabilize the whole thing. And in fact, this, this internal um, um, problem is a foundational confession of Judaism and Christianity. This is like one of the central confessions of those two traditions is that God is always greater than anything we could say about God. Always, no matter how like expansive and whatever, imaginative your ideas, how, how glorious God is, it's not enough. God is always greater than anything that we could say about God. God is beyond our imaginary symbolic ideas about God. God transcends imagination, symbolic representations, beliefs, and doctrines, the God that we imagine is always too small. The God we symbolize it's, is a pale representation of, you could say, of the God who is. And at some point for all of us, our imaginary symbolic reality of God, kind of in the, in the world for that matter, will begin to function as a bulwark against eruptions of the real of God. It's kind of weird to think, 
that our religion becomes a way to keep us safe from God, to keep God at a safe distance, right? Our religious beliefs will come away, become a way of shoring ourselves up against eruptions of the real of God, protecting us from a God who cannot be contained or controlled, right? In effect, then robbing us of an experience of God. This is why a lot of us, we hit 30, 35, 40 in a life of faith, and all of a sudden it all goes dry because we, are, we have our system really rigidly built and it is now not welcoming God. It is hold, trying to box God in. And so we're not open to this experience of God that will disturb us, disturb our peace and our settled realities, but at the same time will draw us closer into the heart of God, the God who is, and draw us closer to the truth of what it means to be human. And in fact, part of why we gather as a church for worship is to try to enter into this liminal space together where we give God special access just for a little while to our hearts and we try to catch a glimpse of ourselves you know we try to catch our a glimpse of our own lives the parts that have eluded us for the rest of the week right and we try to just muster up the courage together to acknowledge our own you know blind spots our traumas our, our joys our sorrows our just the strangeness of life, the uncanny, uncanny and haunted aspects of our own experience. We, we gather to kind of draw near to, often, if we're, if we're doing it right, to draw near to the brokenhearted ones, those who live on the margins of society, because they're the ones who challenge our stable realities as much as anything the realities, the systems we create that are stable for us, but that injure them. So we gather to worship in order to widen the gaps, not to cover over them or explain them away, but to, to widen the gaps, let the gaps emerge, attend to the tensions and the cuts in reality. And instead of just patching them over with like certitudes and urging each other to cling to our old imaginary symbolic religious realities, we let the real of God, the God who's always beyond anything we could say about God, just breach our old static system, our old religious bulwarks. The real of God, um, what I mean by that, it's, it's just the aspect of God that is so new to us that it requires us to surrender old religious ways of thinking, messes with our view of reality, and gives us a new vision of the world. So we, we come to worship to, in a sense, allow God to, and experience of God, to disturb our peace and, and widen the place of rupture and just allow God access to all of it, trusting that, that the Spirit is real and God knows what to do with us. It's kind of crazy. And the reason we do this is because, um, because God wants, what God wants is to help us to live in reality as ourselves without fear, unapologetically and unafraid, and so God will smash our idols, if necessary, dismantle our certitudes and our orthodoxies so that we can continue to pursue God 
continue to change and grow, becoming more human as human is intended, be, um, constantly renewed in the image of God as is promised in the scriptures. Thomas, the doubter, followed Jesus of Nazareth. He thought he was Messiah. He saw that what everybody else saw, that if you were around Jesus for any length of time, you came to suspect that somehow God was with him and living in him and through him in a way that scandalized the religious systems, right? I mean, over and over, this is what happened. You know, the, the Hebrew people had powerful imaginary symbolic ideas about what it meant to be a good Jewish person and to live a good life. And the problem was continually that their ideas left a lot of people on the outside. And of course, um, we shouldn't look down on them for this because we still do the same things. I mean, oh my gosh, Christianity does it. All communities do this in one way or another. But from day one of his ministry, Jesus was just crashing his life into their symbolic world, of their religious world of ancient Israel. He was like the real of God, smashing their idols, the, you know, crashing into the religious system and, and, and um, bringing in insiders or outsiders to the inside and um, making clean those who were unclean in their system. And you'd just go stand with the outsiders and heal whatever made people unclean. Like the time when, when they wanted to condemn that adulterous woman. Jesus blocked them. She's, he's like, You're, she's not the problem. We're the problem. You guys are the problem. Anyone who thinks they're not the problem, you start. You throw the first stone. It's like a wrecking ball to this deeply held belief that they were the righteous ones, they were good ones. And, of course, their first thought was then, we got to shut this guy up, right? That's that imaginary covering over the gap. Especially when he told parables like the Good Samaritan, right? Where it wasn't the priest or the rabbi who was the good guy. It was the despised Samaritan, the outsider, the immigrant. And, and again, because he was the one who ignored those religious categories of in and out, the, the priest and the rabbi, they clung to those religious categories. And so the, the end of the story is that they missed out on neighboring. They didn't get to know the joy of being a good neighbor. And Jesus just kind of hurled these parables like projectiles at the heads of the imaginary symbolic world of his own people. He said, you guys, you guys think you're good? Who is really good? Only God is good. You want to be good? Do the will of God. And they said, well, what is the will of God? And he said, the one who feeds the hungry, helps the sick, welcomes the stranger, and goes to visit the prisoner. That's it. And if you've ever fed the hungry, or care for the sick, or stranger, or prisoner, if you've ever wrestled with disease or imprisonment or struggled against injustice or the powers of this world, you know it messes with your reality. It messes with your old sense of right and wrong and those categories that, you know, charted the world for you. It turns the world upside down to hang out with the losers and the broken ones. And it's happened, happened to me. Suddenly the people used to revere now seem like a problem. And those who used to be a problem, you're suddenly um, aware they seem very, very close to the heart of God. And so Thomas, man, he doesn't believe at first. 
um, it doesn't fit, you know, his imaginary symbolic reality. He, was, he wasn't there when Christ first appeared to them. And so dad is dead in, in Thomas's world, and there's no coming back from that. But if you'll notice, when, when we read earlier, Kristen read earlier, what changes his mind is an eruption of the real, an encounter with the impossible. Actually, in particular, it's an encounter with um, Christ's wounds. Did you notice that detail? It's the wounds of love. That's what changes his mind. Wounds um, that were caused by a broken religious system, a broken governmental system, kind of combining together to afflict them. Christ drew close to those broken things and loved them, loved them even as they wounded him. If you remember, his prayer on the cross was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, even as they're doing it. But when he showed Thomas these wounds, the wounds of love, it's like Thomas's old world exploded. It, it was wrecked. It was an eruption of the real of God. Suddenly, Thomas is living in a brand new reality, and he falls down and breaks Jewish law, like hardcore, the kind of thing you get killed for. This is blasphemy. He says, my Lord and my God. He's the first one to ever say that in the Gospel of John. Part of what this story reveals is that, you know, the only compelling evidence for the lordship of Christ will be a people who agree to bear the wounds of love. I mean, how, how do you think people who are far from God will find themselves longing to draw near to God and finding a way, right? Will it, will it be because we get really, really good at arguing with them about things and condemning their sinfulness, right? I mean, n nobody ever became a Christian because they lost an argument, you know what I mean? People will only come to follow Jesus when those who follow Jesus agree to bear the wounds of love. And these almost always come to us as an eruption of the real, something that just doesn't compute. That, that's why I always say the most important members of Redemption Church are our homeless and formerly homeless members. I mean, you guys are, you're saving us as a church. You're discipling us through your very presence. You're waking us up to the realities of the world. You are the the face of Jesus that we can touch and see. And, and to, get, to get to know your stories, man, and call you friends, has transformed me as a pastor and has transformed this place. God has come to us each week disguised as homeless men and women, like a wrecking ball, the real of God, crashing into our nice, you know, religious realities, revealing, in some cases, the terrible cost of our sanctified religion that cannot bear the wounds of love and revealing the consequences of, of the lives we live and the systems we make. They are like prophets, bearing the wounds of love, inflicted by, I mean, name it, our, our broken families, our broken churches and communities, our broken promises, our broken systems of economics, education, mental health, addictions, our broken housing systems, criminal justice, healthcare systems. They, they just offer us friendship, and when they do, they, um, 
they transform us into neighbors. And their struggles, when we love them and they love us, their struggles begin to wound us. You know what I mean? Some of you know this feeling. Their life, the life they live, it wounds us. You know, it's when you stay awake. I can't hardly talk about that. When it's super cold out at night and all you can think about is these guys. You know what I mean? And it's not in general. You're naming them in your head. Please keep them safe. It's brutal. Those are the wounds of love. That's it. Breaking into our hearts and, you know, shattering our religious ideas about right and wrong. And I, I don't know if we always truly understand what a gift that is to be neighbors and friends, part of the same body with those who are so close to the heart of Jesus. And what most people want to do with the homeless is, is make them invisible, right? Hide them downtown. And so we're really, really lucky to get to see them every week and know them and hear their stories. They speak like prophets, man, only with much more colorful language, right? <laughs> Crashing into the way that the, the world is organized and the truth is that it wounds us. It hurts. But these are the wounds of love, the ones that Jesus bore. And it's always an encounter like this with some strange other that we're, you know, programmed to kind of dismiss or condemn. They always turn out to be the agent of God's grace. God comes to us as a bunch of ragamuffins, anyone on the margins and crashes our idealized religious view of how it's supposed to go and gives us a, a view of what our Christianity looks like from there, from the side of the road. It's not always pretty, and it hurts. But these are the wounds of love. And, and when you realize they're the holy ones, they're the presence of God, then they, they become the agents of God's grace for us and offer, they, they offer us a, a chance to repent Thomas was an insider, man. He was one of the 12. And Jesus, he thought, was the Jewish Messiah who would come with a sword and liberate the people Israel. They had a system, and he was going to restore that system to power. Thomas declared himself, he was the one. He said, I'm, let's just go back, you know, we're going to go back to Bethany. Let's all go with him. We might as well die together, right? And then Jesus came crashing into it resurrected. It wasn't the first time. He had also come crashing into it, telling them to love their enemies, making outsiders into heroes, hanging out with losers and immigrants and tax collectors and prostitutes and pretty much anyone who is a problem for their religion. Then he was arrested. He was killed on a Roman cross and then laid in a tomb. And this did not fit with their religious system of what Messiah should be. I mean, in the, in the first century, when this all happened, the first century and then a span of 50 years on either side of this, so like a, that 200-year period of Jewish history, we know of at least 10 to 12 would-be Jewish messiahs. We know who they, they were. We know what they did. We know they talked about the kingdom of God. They promised signs and wonders. They promised political deliverance. And we know in every case, um, they all ended up in the violent death of the, the key messianic figure. It's happened like 10 to 12 times. 
Now, when your Messiah died, you had two options. Give up the movement or find a new Messiah. But after Jesus died, his followers didn't do either one of those things. They continued the movement with Jesus at, a, at its head. And when they were asked why, they gave one reason. They said, he was resurrected. He was resurrected. That was their claim. It's, it's nutballs. Like, it's as crazy back then as it sounds now, right? Resurrection does not fit with reality. It's unbelievable. It's an eruption of the real. You know, today, we, they just, people um, dismiss it as some ar- arcane religious fantasy. Unless you've seen the wounds of love on someone who's bearing them for you. And then you have doubts about your doubts. When you've experienced new life coming through those wounded people. New life in the place you thought was dead and gone. When Jesus appeared to the twelve, he was a wrecking ball. Crashing into their ideas about religion and life and death and God. All those religious things that they thought were just realities, you know, just realities, unquestionable. And then he showed them the wounds of love and he said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Go out into the world and bear the wounds of love and watch and see if I don't just bring things to life, things you thought were dead. And a whole new reality began breaking into the world that day. Jesus, back from the dead, impossible. Thomas wasn't there that day, though, the first time. He's out, you know, getting gas in the car or something. He comes back. They're going crazy, saying Jesus is alive. They had become, you know, suddenly prophets of the the new kingdom, and they're crashing into him. And Thomas said what any of us would have said at the moment. You guys are crazy. You're crazy. I'll believe it when I see it. And so he comes back, appears to Thomas, shows him the wounds of love. And he fell to his knees and proclaims blasphemy. My Lord and my God. And from that day on, he was new creation, man. All of them were forgiving instead of taking revenge, loving their enemies, even those who were seeking to kill them, turning the other cheek, welcoming strangers and immigrants, running all over to Gentiles, Gentiles, and telling them about Christ. And they got wrecked, eventually killed. I mean, they all came to bear the wounds of love. But we're here because of them. All of us were Christians because of their faithfulness. It's strange we spend so much time, you know, just almost like torturing yourself. Oh, I wish God, I wish God, it was, God would show up and just show God's self and be, be real. I'm like, God is here always. The real of God is crashing into our idols. And the problem is it doesn't compute because it's always the poor, the marginalized. It's always the broken people, the people who don't fit. God comes in a form that um, we're always tempted to reject. It's the presence of the homeless, the immigrant, the broken, the parent who tries your patience, the neighbor who drives you nuts, the boss who treats you poorly, the spouse who breaks your heart, 
the friend who takes for granted, the child who walks away, and yet somehow our faithful bearing with those people, those that we frankly really struggle to love, just living in fidelity to them involves bearing the wounds of love, and this is how resurrection breaks into the world. But it scrambles our realities, our, our religious ones especially. And so our task on this side of the resurrection is to draw near to the brokenhearted until all our hearts are broken. Let God wreck us a little bit and wreck our religious certitudes, sort of empty us out, some of those things, pouring out our lives for the least and the last and the lowly. And if we do, what we'll find is that the God of peace will fill the emptiness with God's presence. And it won't compete. It won't compute, but we'll come alive in any way. Life in the place of death. That's the gospel. And our world is watching us, church, hoping to see something different than what they usually see, waiting to see if, if we'll actually do it, actually bear the wounds of love, just praying that there's a willingness to, to welcome the outsider and as, as the real of God comes, it comes like a wrecking ball and crashes our lives. And if we, if we, we receive the wounds of love, and, and we will know God is real, and we, we will see new life coming from the place of death. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, it seems just impossible. And maybe that's because we're kind of doing okay in this structure as it is, in our settled reality, the way it's organized right now. And so I pray in this um, Easter tide that we would think about the story of Thomas and the wounds of love that changed his life. And that we would think about heading to the margins of the world and then we, we would look to find you in, in the faces of those we're tempted to reject even our enemies and pray for this great 50 days as we tell these stories about life coming from death and I pray that new life would come to the, the dead and dying and broken and injured places for all of us. We want so much to come alive. We look to you and to our Messiah, the Christ. We say, come Lord Jesus, come to us. Amen invite you to stand please and we're going to receive communion and um, the way we do this is you'll we'll, the ushers will release us you'll come forward and we are believe it or not back to real bread you guys it's it's a big deal um if and, and so the way we do it is you just take a piece of bread dip it in the cup and receive it and they'll say remember the body and blood of christ 
and you can say um, amen, say I will remember, or just respond however you'd like. If you're not comfortable doing the intinction thing, there's still some of the shrink wrap things. You can just grab one of those if that's better for you. The reason that we do this is because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it, passed it out to his guys, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, same thing, blesses it, passes it around, they all drink from it. He said, this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God in my blood, my life, blood meant life. And he said, I mean, this is a weird thing, he said, he said, whenever you gather, eat my body, drink my blood, which is weird. But he, what he meant was, take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out in the world and see if life doesn't come from death. That's, that's the idea. And so this is why we do it every week. We come forward and we, we receive this, and it's kind of this symbolic way of drawing God, God's life into our life and then trying to live as God's hands and feet. And this is also why we don't set up any barriers. Anybody, you know, any broken person can come to this table, man, and uh, share this meal and share in this life with us. So will you pray with me? Lord, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out? And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?